Welcome to Halal Money Matters presented by Saturna Capital. I'm Christopher Patton. And I'm Monim Salam. Something that came up in our one of our Ramadan episodes was this idea of, even if it's not exactly fun to think about, making sure that you have a, a will and everything you need that goes along with it, basically making a plan for your estate. Yeah, it's really important, especially in the life of a Muslim, when <clears throat> you know your, your estate can be divvied up um, not according to Islamic values um, if you don't do anything about it. It's an important topic to, to cover. And there are very specific requirements that are laid out. So it seems like it could be very easy to have it not go your way if you don't have a, a specific plan in place. Yeah, I mean, mentioned in the Quran, there's multiple you know, sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. So yeah, there's a lot of, uh, lot of literature on that. Speaking of literature on that, we have a great guest to help sort out what are the obligations? Why is it so important? What can you expect when you're making an inheritance plan? Uh, Yasser Ali, he's an estate planning attorney from the Phoenix area, specializing in Islamic estates. Also author of the book, Estate Planning for the Muslim Client. Yeah, really excited to talk to him. Let's get into this. So thanks, uh, Yasser, for joining us on the show today. The topic that we're talking about for our listeners is uh, the importance of estate planning, especially when it comes for, to Muslims uh, in, in the U.S. Um, and so I guess we can start off and, and maybe Yasser, you can tell us a little bit about, you know, um, maybe the differences between, uh, if there are any, I'm sure there are, about just, you know, kind of just regular estate planning versus uh, for Muslims. Um, but then particularly for Muslims, why it's more important maybe to do it than if you were just regular doing estate planning. Sure thing. Uh, and, and thanks for having me. It's always nice. It's always nice to catch up and chat. Um, and specifically today on the topic of estate planning, which is, um, you know, what I do professionally is, is counsel clients around the country, particularly Muslims, on how to develop religiously compliant estate plans. Um, and this is a field I think, you know, you, you counsel clients from a financial perspective on thinking about Sharia compliant investing. And that's something that I think a lot of Muslims understand on some level. But when we get into estate planning, it's like a different universe. It's a different world people are not very uh, familiar with. What, what are we talking about? And often when I introduce myself as an estate planning attorney, uh, people will say, oh, that's awesome. I'll tell my friend thinking, um, you know, I don't need to do this kind of planning. So it's a great place to start. You know, what are we talking about? And if you think about it from an Islamic perspective, if we look at any type of um, subject matter, it's important to know the definitions. So when we talk about estate planning, we're really talking about the uh, uh, planning for the transition for the management and transition of wealth. So not only are we concerned about what happens after I die, but also what happens if I become incapacitated as you know, modern medicine uh, advances and there's more technology and more scientific advancement. Most people don't tend to die suddenly. And so we want to think about if I become incapacitated, who's going to, take care of me and how are my loved ones going to be taken care of those that may be dependent upon me, children, parents, et cetera. It's interesting that you mentioned that um, I, a lot of clients have a, have a very difficult time with the estate planning process because yeah. it's probably the longest time they'll ever spend thinking about what happens after they die. Right. And for a lot of people, that's really scary. And I, I know for myself, for having recently gone through it, there's a lot of um, thinking you have to do sometimes uncomfortable thinking uh, sometimes uh, uncomfortable conversations you have to have with your with your loved ones, all of those things kind of go into it, which kind of 
makes people kind of say, yeah, it's for my friend. It's not for me kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we see it all the time that, uh, not only that, but also there's some cultural biases too, uh, particularly within certain immigrant cultures, uh, that many Muslims may come from. And it's ironic on some level because the Quran constantly emphasizes and reminds us of the reality of death, that and to prepare for death. And the Hadith teaches this. But within our cultures, it's like, don't talk about it because it's going to happen if you talk about it. And if we don't, then somehow we'll think it's not going to happen. Um, and so there is a cultural piece to it. And then there, these are, you know, real difficult questions. Who's going to take care of my children? Who's going to take care of my parents that I might be uh, supporting? You know, is my spouse going to have enough? Uh, what's going to happen? And in the event of incapacity, in the event of uh, if I pass away. And then, you know, the other piece to this whole question with estate planning is also a lifetime uh, planning component. So how are my assets currently owned? And there's a, a whole sort of subfield of estate planning known as asset protection which many of our uh, clients that are physicians and business owners are constantly concerned about in a litigious society, how do I protect what I have so that somebody doesn't come and take it from me? Uh, so that's also a dimension or a component of, of estate planning. Your, your, your actual question uh, is, was how does it differ for Muslims? So what I talked about is something that everyone should be thinking about. If you're a parent, you're naturally going to be worried about your children. If you're uh, a business owner, you're considered about, worried about protection. If you have anything of any sort, any assets, or if you owe people money, you're going to want to make sure that you have a plan in place. And we'll talk about the components throughout you know, the, the conversation, inshallah. But that's universal across the board. Um, if I don't have a plan, the state is going to make one for me, and it's probably not consistent with my wishes. And so as Muslims, we now have a double sort of dimension or another reason to do estate planning, which is inheritance is actually the only uh, obligation in our entire tradition that is explicitly laid out in the Quran itself. And it's pretty amazing if you think about it. You know, so the Quran tells us, all of these obligations are mentioned in generalities and you have to open the books of hadith and fiqh to figure out how to actually perform salah and what to do when you go for hajj and how much zakat and what's zakat eligible and what's zakat exempt and how much percentage on agriculture versus, you know, uh, gold. But when it comes to inheritance, it's actually explicitly detailed in primarily in three verses of Surah An-Nisa. And it's a, something that, you know, has tremendous importance when you read those verses and the verses that come after it. So as Muslims, we have this whole dimension living in America uh, where we have to create a plan in order to ensure that that obligation is accounted for. It's not going to happen uh, just as a matter of course, as it does often in many Muslim majority countries. And do you find that that is commonly known? Is there an educational component there? Or do people come to you knowing that there is a kind of a specific obligation? Yeah, there, there's, uh, it's a combination. So there's, there is on one level, a massive um, education gap, which interestingly is foretold by the Prophet ﷺ in a hadith in which he says that the knowledge of inheritance law, it's known within the Sharia as fara'id, 
He says, learn and teach inheritance law for verily it's half of all knowledge. And he says it would, and it's going to be forgotten. And so that is absolutely the case today when we look around the Muslim world or, or the Muslim communities, um, you'll see that people have some vague idea that I got to do it Islamically, but really don't have any, uh, for the most part, obviously some people are experts, but for the most part, people aren't really too knowledgeable about what does that mean and what does that look like and how do I implement it here in America in particular. And also I think it's not something that, uh, Monam, as you alluded to earlier, it's just not a pleasant thing for a lot of people to think about. And so you don't hear a lot of Jummah khutbas about, you know, inheritance law and you don't have a lot of hadakas. And so it's normally not front and center on a lot of people's minds. And then the reason, another reason why is, as you mentioned uh, earlier, in Muslim countries, uh, if you, as long as your ID, ID card says you're Muslim, they're going to m- most likely distribute your assets according to Sharia guidelines. So it's, it's really like, like when, if, if you're learning the the, the how to pray well you have to do it individually so right. you know you have to learn how to do it or how to how to give zakat you're doing it yourself so you have to learn how to do it when when you when you're distributing the state you're already dead man you're not you're not doing it exactly. so it's one of those things where the state comes in and does it but it's it makes it even more important in the u.s because they're not going to do it i mean yeah i mean they are going to do it, but they're going to do it according to their own laws whatever the according state to the city, yeah, right so yeah and, th- and that, that i think is is absolutely right um within not just Muslim countries, but in fact, even countries that have large Muslim populations. So even in India, for example, uh, like you said, if your you know, ID is Muslim, uh, Muslim personal law would apply, even in a country where Muslims are not the majority. And, and this is really fascinating because no matter how secular the Muslim majority country is, Islamic inheritance law is still the default law in each of those, in each of those countries. Uh, now, there's been some movements to try and, you know, make some adjustments uh, uh, and modernize some of the rules and things like that. But as a principled matter, Islamic inheritance law applies in all of these countries. So it's not, you don't have to set up a trust if you're from Syria or you live in Pakistan or you're in Egypt or Saudi Arabia or, or you know, uh, Somalia or wherever the case may be. It's just not typically something that you need to do. Um, and then the other point you mentioned is interesting too about you know, you're already dead. And I think this is uh, really important. Uh, the hadith that I mentioned, one of the things that the scholars mention about that hadith is the Prophet ﷺ says that uh, inheritance law is half of all knowledge. And when you think about why it's described as half of all knowledge, partially, or one of the explanations is yeah, yeah, it impacts so many relationships around you. But one of the other explanations is that it's the only thing that you have to do after you're, after you're dead. Um, whereas everything else you study is about, you have to apply it in your life. This is the only thing that you're responsible for when you're no longer around. And in America, it's not possible. It's just not going to happen uh, unless you plan for it. Um, otherwise, some other default um, rules would apply. So now, so let's get into a little bit more specifics now, because I know there's a there's a hadith of the prophet and you're much more knowledgeable about this than I am, but uh, where uh, he, he says that, you know, a person that has something to bequeath shouldn't go two nights without uh, having something written on, on, on his behalf. So that kind of brings up the question, you know, I, I don't think estate planning is for, uh, is for just those people who have money. It should be for pretty much everybody, right? Those who have anything to bequeath. So it could be 
uh, you know, uh, some maybe some person in college even, or just recently married, or or those type of things. So, so where do we start with, or who do we who do we focus on? Is it everybody uh, has to be treated equally, or is it different stages of your life you have different types of estate planning? Yeah, uh, the last part I think is is where it is probably a good approach for a lot of people. Um, anyone with any type of wealth. So when we think about uh, estate planning, we're thinking about our assets. Uh, and our liabilities. Now, those words might sound complicated, as does estate planning, but really it's planning for your stuff, right? The stuff that you own and the stuff that you owe to other people. So whether you've got only debts and nothing else, or you've got, you know, uh, a few hundred dollars to your name, you want to make sure from an Islamic perspective that you're planning for it. And the hadith you quoted is, is a very famous one in that regards. Um, so, so I think it's important to, to take a, a approach that, you know, I have to create a plan that's applicable to me today. And as my wealth grows, then that plan can become more and more sophisticated. Um, just like we, you know, the same sort of approach we take in, in financial planning uh, and other components of our life. It's not typically something that, you know, we recommend putting off until, you know, you're older and you're well-established and all of that simply because we never know. And so, that's why a basic plan, I think, is something that everyone should have in place. And a basic plan is not complicated. So if we want to simplify this for people to understand, well, what does a basic plan look like? Um, we generally describe three documents that everybody should have, every adult should have, um, which is a will, a power of attorney, and a healthcare directive. So a will is a simple document. It can be a simple document. It can be much more complex, but a simple document that says, after I pass away, I name such and such person to be in charge of my, uh, the administration of my estate. And I want to make sure that um, if I have any minor children, uh, you know, my brother Ahmed is going to be the guardian uh, for them. And I want my wealth to be distributed in this manner. Uh, and that, of course, would be consistent with the rules uh, that are laid out in, in the Quran. So, I mean, I remember, uh, you know, back in the 80s, or even late 80s, early 90s, uh, you know, Islamic Society of North America had basically a document you could basically get a hold of, print out, yeah. fill in your name, and then sign it. And for from some states, you could, that would be good, or you get to notarize. Yeah. And now I think they still have that, but also now there's uh, just websites you can go to and just kind of fill in your information, and whoop, it just kind of prints out a a will for you. Um, mm-hmm. Is that is that something that that everybody should consider? Yeah, for basic cases, I think that's a good starting point. Um, I think that, you know, uh, we sort of analogize that to, to the TurboTax model of estate planning. If you don't have much, um, it probably works. And the more you have, the more, you know, you probably want to go to a CPA for your tax planning. And the same, in the same vein, you probably want to go to a, an attorney who understands Islamic law um, to do your, your, your more complex trust planning and, and more comprehensive uh, planning for your family. Now, what I will say, though, is it's really important to understand the limitations of a will. So almost everybody that contacts us says, hey, I've got to cre- I need to create a will, not really understanding that a will has certain limitations. I think three of them are worth mentioning uh, for everyone to understand. The first is that even if you have a will, the will has to be submitted to the probate court. And so the assets would have to go through the probate court process. So that's uh, a court, uh, you know, a government court process that most people want to avoid. It's inefficient, it's expensive, 
there's generally no reason to do it, regardless of which state you are. And now some states like California, it's a terribly inefficient process. Uh, other states, it's more streamlined and it's easier. But to the extent that you can avoid it, I would say most people, you know, will try to avoid, Muslim or non-Muslim, try to avoid having to go through probate. Um, so that's the limitation, number one. Number two is that it doesn't cover any assets that are jointly owned. So if you go to one of these websites or you go to a lawyer uh, and say, you know, write up this really nice Islamic will that cal calculates who gets what after I die. The reality is that if you've got a, a home that's owned between a husband and a wife, it's going to go 100% most of the time to the surviving spouse. Um, same could be the case if there are other joint tenants on that uh, or joint owners of that, uh, of that property. So a lot of people don't realize that the right of survivorship is going to trump whatever's written in that will. And then um, the same goes for uh, beneficiary designations. So whether it's an IRA beneficiary or a life insurance beneficiary, if you've got somebody named there, that person is going to receive the wealth directly without the will applying to that act. And the will, you know, we talked about the will, the power of attorney is for incapacity. So when I'm no longer able to make decisions, I name, you know, uh, my sister Aisha to uh, make financial decisions, to make investment decisions, to be able to, you know, file taxes for me and, and go to the post, all kinds of financial management decisions. And then um, healthcare is, is somewhat, you know, a different topic than our core financial planning, but it's really, really important, especially in a lot of COVID now, where it's critical you memorialize end of life wishes and also who's going to be responsible for uh, making those decisions. Unfortunately, what we, every, everybody's heard of, you know, disputes arising where, you know, people are supposed to be getting together and, you know, praying for the, the person in their last moments. And instead people are fighting about, you know, who makes the call and, and, and what should happen. And unfortunately, uh, that happens a lot nowadays. And so we want to sort of have real good clarity as to who's in charge and what are my preferences on end of life care uh, decisions. So you brought up a good point. Uh, and, and now we'll kind of maybe talk a little bit about what's, what's, what's allowed, what's not allowed, you know, those type of things. I've heard that people talk about this idea of joint tenants with rights of survivorship, right? Um, right. Is that valid uh, from, from, and I, I know that that's the default for even pretty much everybody, including Muslims, when they buy their house or open up a bank account, those type of things. Is that something, A, uh, from an Islamic perspective, okay? And B, uh, something you recommend even from a conventional perspective? Now, knowing, and I realize you're not a scholar, but very similar to me, I've, I've have, we've had, we were in the, in the business, we're practicing enough to be able to kind of give a general answer about yes or no. So I'm really not looking for a fatwa, just kind of just your, your opinion on yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, it's, it's a, it's a critical question because like you said, most everybody that buys a house as a married couple buys it with joint tenancy as a right of survivorship and community pro or community property with a right of survivorship. Um, and from an Islamic perspective, the rights of an heir vest when the person passes away. And so it's very important to understand within the Muslim family who owns what, because my mom and my dad are entitled to one sixth each of my wealth, depending upon who else is alive. But in general, if you've got children 
a spouse and parents. The parents are going to be entitled to one sixth. The spouse is going to be entitled to either a fourth, a half or an eighth, depending upon husband or wife and whether there's kids or not. And then the children are generally, if you've got boys and girls, it's going to be two to one among the children, right? So the boys would get double. I'm sure we can talk a lot about that. It's critical that we define in a married couple who owns what. So when we typically start an estate planning conversation, that's where we start is who owns what. Now, to your question about um, whether the joint tenancy is valid, the joint tenancy itself is valid. The right of survivorship is the piece that is problematic under Islamic law, right? So if 100% goes to my spouse, then necessarily we violated the, 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 the rights of the people that were entitled to inherit. Now, my wife could, as a, an ethical obligation, then distribute the shares to the people that are entitled to inherit, be they my parents, uh, and manage the shares for, for my kids or our joint kids. So that often can happen and does happen, but uh, it's only done as a as an, as an ethical obligation, not as a legal obligation. And so where we start with most Muslim couples is to say, look, let's define who owns what, not, uh, and, and, and transfer assets into a trust and, and sort of sever the right of survivorship uh, so that it's not going 100% to the survivor. Now, in certain cases, there's, you know, asset protection, you know, uh, considerations that need to be taken into into consideration and account. But in general, yes, this is not an Islamic uh, method of owning property and transferring property. So just from experience, like, let me let me kind of throw a scenario out there for you. And this yeah. this doesn't only happen in the houses. It can happen in IRA beneficiaries as well. That yeah. I've had some people come up to me and say, well, you know, I'm alive right now. I have these IRA assets. If I designate my wife as beneficiary, I'm doing it in my lifetime. It would be as if I gave a gift mm-hmm. or the same thing with the, with, with the joint, with the house, which is I I'm doing it with my, with my clear mind and, and body, right? We're putting it together, knowing that uh, after I die, uh, when, when we both own it and she's going to get it, I'm doing it while I'm alive. It's almost like a gift. Is that not yeah. something that's valid? Yeah. So, so uh, great question. So the gifting, uh, so, so let's talk about gifting under Islamic law, right? So the rules of Islamic inheritance law only apply on death. And so what I have upon my death needs to be distributed per the Sharia. Um, and maybe if we take a step back, if you think about sort of, if we break Islamic financial ethics into three components, um, the first is how you earn your money. It has to be in a, in a Sharia compliant manner. And most people understand that. Uh, and then the aspect that you deal with, which is how do we invest our money? That I can't take my halal income and then gamble it away at a casino. Uh, I don't have that discretion. It's not something that I can do. Um, and so how I invest it and how I spend it is something that you know, we want to be cognizant of and do in a Sharia compliant manner. And the third component is what happens to my wealth after I die. Right. And again, we just don't have discretion under under the rules of the Quran that if I want to do something different, the rules are laid out. Now, the way that you can say the discretion that we do have uh, uh, or on death, we only have up to one third that's discretionary. But prior to death, you can do whatever you want uh, without violating sort of without committing dhulm or injustice. Right. So I've got one hundred dollars. I want to give it all away in my lifetime. Not a problem. 
if I want to give all of my wealth to my wife, no problem, right? I'm allowed to do that. And so very frequently people will come and say, look, you know, the wife's share under Islamic law is only an eighth if I've got children and that's not enough and she needs more and I want to give her more. And so I would like to make that, you know, uh, one third, right? And so that's, that, that exercise is not allowed. What we generally recommend is, you know, gift during your lifetime. So this notion of hiba, which is a gift under Islamic law, is one that we should use and we recommend all the time. But the classical definition of hiba is a gift in which the beneficiary or the recipient takes control. And so now with these complicated assets, modern financial instruments like, you know, retirement accounts, that's not possible, right? I can't actually gift my IRA asset while I'm alive to another beneficiary or my 401k asset or something without a, a penalty, right? Um, and so it's a, little bit, uh, it's a little bit different now from a, uh, that type of asset. But with regards to a, a house where you can deed it over, um, we would say that you can gift and you can call it 50-50 ownership if the husband is the one who's, who's earning um, but the right of survivorship piece, which is like, basically I gift it to you unless I die first or some sort of, you know, conditional, uh, if this comes back to you and otherwise you come back to me, that's where we get into sort of problematic terms. And that's sort of the work also that, you know, scholarly bodies here in the U S and in the West in general, I think need to look closer into, um, Estate planning and inheritance is an area that, uh, you know, mashallah, there's been a lot of work in Islamic finance. Um, and I don't think we're there yet when it comes to inheritance at all. Um, and so looking at sort of the practical application of all of these um, inheritance questions uh, and looking at the law and how do we, you know, bridge these two together uh, is something that, you know, inshallah, hopefully a lot of the, the, the scholarly bodies and uh, councils will do and then you know, coming terms, inshallah. Yeah, uh, that's true. And then just, just to clarify, um, you mentioned something about gifting the one third from your estate. Yep. And my understanding, so, so we, we were very clear, is that one third cannot go to or gift to anybody who is an immediate beneficiary of the other two thirds. Is that correct? Right. Or no? Yeah, that's correct. So the, the, the I can't one third gift to my wife, correct? Correct. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is a great common question as well. I'm going to go ahead and use my one third to enhance the share of my wife or of my, of my daughters, right? We see that all the time. And so the hadith of the Prophet is very clear that you can't use the wasiyah for a warith. So someone who's entitled to inherit from the mandatory shares, which are known as the fara'il, you can't use uh, the one third for that unless all of the other heirs consent. So the one scenario would be, uh, typically where we see the one third is, um, you know, charitable bequests and building endowments and sustainable institutions. And this is what, you know, we highly encourage when we think about, you know, long-term sustainability of our organizations and institutions in America, you know, you can do a lot uh, from that one third, but people also use it for grandchildren. People also use it for um, nieces, nephews, people that they're supporting personally and privately. It just can't go to the benefit of the, the, the heirs that are specified in the Quran, which would effectively be just throwing off the, the whole framework. And so, okay, so just kind of, kind of, kind of recapping. So let's, let's talk about it. So 
Um, a husband and wife come up and, and, and the wife is like, oh, I only get one eighth or one quarter. Yeah. That's, I'm, I'm worth more than that. And the husband says, yeah. well, okay, yeah, maybe that's not fair. And so your recommendation is, okay, let's start doing something in uh, your current, in your lifetime to yep. be able to give that gift away. And, and what I find is a lot of people are not willing to do that. So yeah. I, I, I kind of come back and tell them, well, you know, why are you willing to do it after you die, but you're not willing to do it when you're alive? You know, that's <laughs> absolutely. And it's, it's, it's very common. Um, but a nuance here that's really important that a lot of people don't realize is um, we can't also have this conversation without talking about what is community property. So for those folks that are living on the West coast of the U S um, uh, and the Southwest from Texas, basically, if you draw an L, you know, across uh, Arizona and California and Washington and all of these States, um, they, uh, these are States that operate under what's known as a community property regime. And basically community property is a notion of property ownership in which whatever is earned inside of a marriage is presumed to be 50 50 between the, the couple. So the marital unit basically is, is, is the community. And so if a husband uh, earns 500,000 million dollars a year and the wife is taking care of kids at home, uh, $500,000 of that is presumed to be hers and $500,000 is presumed to be his. Now this really only matters in the case of death or divorce is the only time that it comes out in, in, in sort of where do we need to apply this? It matters in the case of death or divorce. Um, and so a lot of people are not aware of that, that this is actually the default assumption, the starting point in, um, in community property jurisdictions. And, and some level, you know, the inverse of this from an Islamic perspective, generally what a wife earns is hers to keep. And, you know, the husband has no claim on the wife's share. And so if we take the inverse analogy, which is, you know, the wife is a neurosurgeon and the husband is a stay at home dad and she's earning a million dollars a year and he's earning zero. Um, you know, from an Islamic perspective, when people say, Hey, the Islamic shares are not fair or it's not enough, you know, this would be a situation where we would, you know, most people would look at it and say, that's totally unfair that the husband who does nothing, is now you know a fifty percent owner um, in in the wealth, but it's based on this notion of you know you're sharing responsibilities and obligations within a marital unit, and so therefore all the income is going to be fifty fifty. And so that's something really important to think about if we're talking about a wife gets one eighth. Is it one eighth of a hundred dollars or is it one eighth of fifty dollars? Because fifty dollars is already hers, whether he intended to gift it or not. Um, and so that's a conversation that we often have is, you know, even if, if he didn't think he was, you know, uh, going to gift it, she's already entitled to that as a matter of, of state law in most cases. And where do you lie? I mean, is that is a, is a one eighth of 50 or one eighth of 100? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I think community property is not a uh, is not a Islamic form of uh, uh, of of a property ownership in principle, because the example I gave, which is, you know, the wife earns under classical Islamic law, what the wife earns is hers to keep. And, you know, the husband has no claim on that. Uh, but I think what's important to remember is that the idea of, and maybe you could think about it from two different ways. One is this hiba, in which the party that's earning is gifting over to the other spouse uh, and no problem at all. 
uh, with that. And in fact, that's great, right? They're supporting one another. And so whether you take that approach or you take an approach of, you know, this is the default law within the state. And so we're starting from that perspective. Um, I think the problem with that approach is that uh, it's a default law and you're allowed to opt out of it as, the, as long as the parties consent and understand. And also, I mean, the thing, the, the thing that I kind of tell people is that if in a scenario of where both husband and wife are working, yep. right, what typically ends up happening is the, you know, the wife ends up putting all of the money she earns into the joint account and the husband's the yep. one that runs the account. And so, yep. you know, then you're looking at it and saying, well, I only get an eighth. That's not really fair. And yep. what I kind of encourage people to do is, well, okay, that's good, but then keep your account separate. Yep. Right. And whatever you decide to spend on your children or on the household, that's a gift. That's not a requirement. Yep. And then if, if you're not required to do it, then, then it, it goes back to Islamic history when, for example, you know, Khadija was able to spend on the da'wah of the Prophet وسلم, because she had her wealth. So all of these, these kind of great Islamic institutions can be built by the support of, of women because they're not, they're not forced to be able to take care of the, uh, you know, the household. So, so I, I, I definitely agree. And this is something that we recommend frequently as well, which is, uh, and it really depends on how, you know, a married couple, how, how they're coming into the conversation. So in some cases, we have clients who do keep everything separate. Um, they're both working. They're two physicians. They both have their separate accounts and they've got a joint account. And so whatever goes into the joint account is, you know, from the wife's side is considered a gift. The husband, of course, has financial obligations towards the family in which he has a responsibility to provide for their clothing and their shelter and their food and all of that. Um, but then upon death, it's really clean that the wife's assets in the separate account are going to be distributed to her heirs per the Sharia and from the husband's side, the same. And then within the joint account, we have, uh, you know, a split of 50, 50 assets potentially that are going to flow into the separate, um, into the separate accounts, or if we're, you know, setting up trusts into the separate trusts. And so this is definitely something that, um, whichever approach you take, whether it's, you know, a flat 50-50 or it's a separate trust, I think the most important piece from an estate planning perspective is clarity, right? Because we just, it's impossible to implement the rules unless you, in your lifetime, have clarity as to ownership of property. Uh, and so it's an important conversation to start. And I'll tell you, you know, uh, sometimes those conversations aren't as pleasant as uh, maybe, <laughs> you know, one spouse had, had envisioned, but it's an important conversation because letting people argue about it after death or even worse, not fulfilling your religious obligations, which are clearly laid out in the Quran, uh, would be, you know, far more problematic than a little bit of, you know, uh, a little bit of stress, I guess, in your life to think about these questions. Yeah. But I feel like you partially answered this just now, but okay, let's say you're somebody who's finally brought themselves past the kind of reluctance to think about death and they're, they're coming in uh, to make a plan. Like what kind of challenges can people expect in that process? So the, the, the primary challenge is just getting over the, the reluctance, like you said, to come in or to start the conversation, even if it's a, if it's a self-help type of approach, right? Um, it's, it's just, once you overcome that hurdle, now you have to start thinking about some difficult questions about property ownership and what, who's giving up what, what am I going to be able to depend upon? Am I going to be able to maintain a certain lifestyle? And in some cases, the answer frankly is no, right? Like it's just not possible. And so you have to come to terms with that reality as well. Um, and then obviously there's a sense of vulnerability 
Um, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. And even with this plan, I can't guarantee that everything is going to go, you know, perfectly and that everyone's going to get along and that, uh, you know, things are going to be, you know, fully harmonious, but I want to do my part. Right. And on some level, you know, as Muslims, we do our part and then we have our tawakkul. But blindly having tawakkul and saying, you know, my family's good. They'll just take care of everything after I'm gone. I'm not going to address it. That's more of, you know, sort of a, a hope than a plan. Um, and so I think just uh, to taking the first step is probably, you know, the, the most challenging for most people. And on the other side of that, do you find that when you work with clients, there's a sense of relief or unburdening that occurs once there's a plan in place? Oh, hundred uh, percent. Because for most people, uh, they've been putting this off for, you know, a good chunk of their lifetime. We do have clients, you know, there's, uh, I think if you look at the spectrum of clients, there's going to be clients who are young, who maybe recently got married and had their first kid. And so that's going to be the first trigger for, I got to take care of my child. So we do have clients and those are the smart clients that start early and, and that do their planning. But for the most part, this is something that everybody puts off. Um, and so it's been on their back burner, like COVID, for example, when, when COVID started at first, I mean, the amount of people that sort of rushed to get plans in place was, was incredible. And then it sort of shifted uh, as people were sitting at home for longer and longer. Um, more and more of the calls that we were getting were like, like, this has been on my to-do list for like 15 years or 20 years or 10 years and I never had time. And now I'm sitting at home and stuck at home. So might as well check off this box, right? Um, so, so definitely once people get, you know, the process started, they tend to finish it and they tend to want to finish it. And then it's not something you update every day, right? So it's like a burden. Like I finished this. We do recommend clients, uh, when I'm like yourself, I'm sure you guys, you know, recommend, you know, we should have a financial checkup every periodically with our clients, same way with your estate plan, you know, it can go stale. Like maybe the tax law changes, maybe the person you named as trustee is no longer alive or you had a falling out with them or they, they're not the best suited person to do the job anymore. So you need to replace them. You have new kids or somebody passes away, major life events, basically every few years is when we recommend, you know, updating, not necessarily starting from scratch, but, um, but updating the plan potentially, yeah, or at least I taking think, a second look at it. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. And I think that gives me a segue, segue into my, my next question, which is, um, you know, an appointing somebody as a trustee or an executor on your state or doing it uh, more of a third party, like a corporation or something like that. What yeah. I, what I found with a lot of, uh, a lot of estate planning is it's complicated and uh, you're giving a lot of responsibility for somebody to do it on, on, on your behalf. Um, and you're, I mean, it's not a matter of trust. I just think it's a matter of you putting a burden on somebody that, that might be really complicated. For example, if you do it one way, you, they might not be invited over for Thanksgiving dinner and, you know, at, at a certain point. So what, what do you recommend? Is it something that you do get your best friend to do, or is it something you just better leave it to a corporate uh, entity? Yeah. Uh, within the estate planning practitioner world, they, they usually say, if you hate someone, name them as your trustee. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because it's, uh, it's an incredible amount of responsibility uh, and, and a burden um, and, and that person is subject to all kinds of fiduciary obligations, right? So they can't, um, they can't squander the wealth. So they have this like legal duty to invest and manage the assets for the benefit of the beneficiaries. And then from a Muslim perspective, there's a whole nother dimension to, the, to serving as a trustee. 
which is, you know, the rights or usurping the rights of an orphan. When you look at the first page of Surah Nisa, um, how strongly that condemnation is laid out in the Quran. Like it's a very heavy obligation to name someone as a trustee. Um, and when we eliminate the court from this process, then there is much less oversight of that person. And so they do have a lot of discretion uh, because nobody's constantly looking over their shoulder. Um, that said, most of our clients name family members as their trustees. In some cases, yes. If you don't have uh, family members, say, in the U.S., or you don't have people that you feel are well-suited, maybe you don't trust them, you know, you don't, you think their judgment may be compromised in some respects, or they're not mature enough, you know, any number of reasons why if you don't have someone that you're close to, that you trust, um, then the alternative is a, a, either a private fiduciary, which is an individual who's going to be doing this job, or a corporate trustee, um, which is a bank, a trust company, um, who can manage the assets, follow your instructions, distribute the wealth to your beneficiaries um, under specific uh, conditions and when they meet certain criteria. And also it's useful in certain cases where we want to uh, have asset protection. So the more, uh, the sort of more distance you create between the beneficiary and their right to make decisions, uh, the, more, the more protection that wealth has from the attack of creditors. So that's another reason to use potentially uh, corporate trustees. Again, there's a bit of a tension with Islamic law there is um, often we have clients that come in that say, I, you know, I don't want my kid to be able to access this wealth till they're 45, you know, and that's, that's unreasonable as sort of controlling from the grave. And so there's going to be a tension when you, you know, put too many restrictions on the right to withdraw and the right to, with, to control, but reasonable restrictions uh, are, are appropriate uh, as well. And you don't want the opposite result, which is when trying to take care of your children, you ruin them by giving them too much too early. Uh, and we've all seen examples of, you know, leave an 18 year old with a bunch of money. What, what's, what's that going to do to their work ethic and to their, you know, desire to seek out education and, you know, develop a career. They're, they might just squander all the wealth and, or worse, you know, harm themselves in the process. So there's a, there's an important delicate balance there. And that's across the board with, 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 with pretty much uh, everybody. Um, See, so now kind of let's, let's talk a little bit about just in, in, in modern life and also from, from a while back, um, you know, maybe let's talk about, for example, you mentioned that the grandkids don't inherit, so you can, you can do um, something from the, from, from the Wasiya side, the one third. Um, how about uh, either foster or adopted children? I don't think you can categorically say that grandkids don't inherit, but they don't inherit to the extent that there's a male child in between. Correct. Um, so Islamic inheritance law is, is fascinatingly complex. Um, and so the simple case is usually parents, children, spouse are going to be the universe of heirs. Uh, in some cases, you'll go higher, uh, ascendants, descendants, if there's nobody in between, so grandparents or grandchildren. Uh, and you may go lateral as well um, to siblings and so on and so forth. Um, but it can go extremely, extremely distant. Um, there will always be people who inherit, whether they are from the first class of those Quranic heirs or more distant residuary heirs. 
um, there will always be a class of people who inherit. Now, um, certain groups of, or certain uh, classes of, of uh, people don't inherit. And this is uh, sort of Islamic law prioritizes uh, or you can clearly see from analyzing the rules, the preference to blood relations. Um, and so foster children, adopted children do not inherit by right under Islamic law. And stepchildren uh, as well, I'm assuming too. Stepchildren as well. Um, so this is one in which blood relations are given priority. Now, that doesn't mean you can't support them. Of course, you can do any sort of hibba in your lifetime. You can set up investment accounts for them or UTMA or education accounts or whatever the case may be. And on death, you can leave up to a third uh, for any beneficiary or anybody you want that's not you know, from, the, from the, the heirs that we already talked about that are entitled to inherit. So, and that one third could be more or less than their similarly situated uh you know actual child for example right the real child might get one fourth but you give one third to an adopted child or a stepchild or a foster child um that's all allowed because there's no there's no restrictions and also from within the wasia if you have a uh adopted boy and an adopted girl the two to one ratio rule doesn't apply as well um, so you have discretion within the Wasiya share as to how you want to handle it. I wanted to, um, you know, talk a little bit about some stories. Uh, I, I, I had one that I want to particularly mention. That I was when I was starting off as a financial advisor. I was living in in Dallas at the time, and and within a space of about you know six months or so, I had two of my clients, um, uh, you know, husbands who passed away, and it was a stark contrast between the two. And I wanted to kind of share this, then maybe yeah, so you can give some feedback as well. And this was in Texas. Um, you know, one of them died with a will and the other one died with a trust. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, but in, upon discovery of the will, we realized that they hadn't notarized the will. Yeah. The court didn't accept it. Mm. And in the case of the trust, I mean, everything looked, looked okay. So within about a month and a half to two months of, of, of the, 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 the person who died with a trust, all everything, everything had been transferred over to the wife. The wife was taken care of. The children was going on their way and everything was, you know, getting back to some semblance of normal that you can't have when you when your father or your husband passes away. On sure. the other one, which was interesting was is that we, they had to go to court. It had to go through probate. And one thing that was interesting in the probate was because they realized that they had some spent some time abroad yeah. in this particular case in India the court actually mandated that an advertisement be placed in the city that they lived in that said, Hey, is there anybody who has, who can claim heirs to, to this person who passed away? And once after a couple of months that the answer became a no, then they began to distribute the assets. So that whole process took about a year to yep. be able to do. And an entire time because the, the, the wife was, was a, was a, was a homemaker, uh, a domestic engineer. She wasn't out there working and those type of things. It was very tumultuous kind of, I think where, how do we access the money? You know, when do we actually declare the death certificate for the bank so that they can, you know, they don't freeze the accounts, all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it's really important that not only you, you kind of go a hundred percent with whatever you start, even in your state planning, which is if this, your state requires a notary, then you actually get it done. So, the, because if you don't, then everything is, you know, as if you never did it in the first place. So any, any stories that you could share very, I don't know if that's so similar to what you experienced, but. Yeah, no, I mean, I think definitely uh, there's two or three points there that you you mentioned that are critical, which is it's one of the 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 the, the I guess the cautionary tales of using self help is um, you know you can create a document, but do you you know do you meet the state formalities 
Um, and, you know, it's not that hard to determine what the state formalities are. Like everybody's pretty adept at, at Google these days, you know, figure out what needs to be done, whether there's, you know, in general, there needs to be two witnesses on every will. There needs to be, uh, you know, if you can notarize it, in most cases, that's going to be even better. Some places, you know, the, some documents require notarization, some documents require witnesses, some require a combination. So make sure you do it correctly, absolutely. Um, and, and uh, you know, we've, we do uh, a lot of planning work, sort of the preemptively preventing, you know, the disputes and the probate uh, proceedings and such, but we also do the back end stuff, right? So we do see families plenty of times where someone passes away, they had no will, they had no trust, and now they're like, what do we do? And going through probate, especially if you own a business, is often a nightmare, right? If the, if the husband was a business owner and passes away and only had his name as the sole name on that LLC or that corporation and wife's name's not even listed there, um, even though, you know, even in a community, community property jurisdiction, she's technically a half owner, she doesn't have the right to do anything. She doesn't have any right to access anything. And often what that ends up leading to is, you know, the business slowly sort of starts to crumble and somebody might want to come in and buy the business, but you don't have the right paperwork in place to do it. Uh, and it might lead to like a fire sale eventually. And so particularly if you own a business, uh, it, it's really critical because the businesses are usually not in both names from what we see often, you know, for, if the husband or the wife is starting it most of the time, they don't put both names on it. And so that's a, a really important uh, thing. We've seen examples like that, uh, really problematic. And then uh, the same thing though goes for the trust. If you, if you create a trust and you don't update and you don't fund the trust. So funding the trust is basically going in and naming the trust as beneficiary on you know, retirement accounts and on investment accounts and retitling properties and retitling uh, bank accounts and investment accounts into the trust, you effectively go through this whole process and create an empty bucket. And now you've got this really nice empty bucket. Um, so the, the process of transferring the assets is known as, known as funding. And that's where, you know, your clients will call you and say, look, I set up a living trust. I want to make sure that my trust is the beneficiary on my accounts. Um, and so that's another sort of piece where we see people missing is they'll do the the drafting work but then not actually transfer any of the assets inside and in that case you still have to go to probate um, because everything is still in its original name yeah like so, so the common ones would be your own investment account a beneficiary on iras even your bank account you have to kind of really really have to retitle um those accounts and sometimes that's a new application you have to fill out other times they'll go in there and fill out one one piece of paper and they'll change the, the account number right then and there, but, but it is a process and people really need to, that's, that's the completion of it. If you don't do that, that's like, like, like the last mile, right? If you don't, if you don't get that right, you're, you're as if you never did anything in the first place. So. Yeah, no, exactly. You will have, you know, if you're, if you're doing a trust, uh, you, you typically have what's known as a pour over will, which says anything I own should go to my trust on my death. Um, so that's a backup sort of pathway, but it's inefficient. It still goes through probate. And so we do want uh, to make sure that, you know, the, the titling, like you said, the accounts and, and think about it this way, you know, the headache or the annoyance that you go through to do this, right? The extra hours or going back. And, you know, often people don't even remember that they have old retirement accounts from old employers and 
there's missing assets in the picture. Like sometimes people just forget, Oh, by the way, there was this from 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that type of legwork doing it yourself, although it may take a little bit of time and it costs money and it's, it's a sort of, uh, something people don't enjoy. And generally it's not like a fun thing to do. Imagine how much time and effort and stress you save your beneficiaries who would otherwise have to do that and who would have to try and contact these institutions and, get the proper paperwork in place to do it first. And so just think about it like a gift. Like this is something I'm doing, you know, to make life easy for my wife and for my husband and for my children and my parents and so on and so forth as well. Yeah. I mean, you're right. It does cost money, but I kind of consider it more like a penny wise pound foolish. Absolutely. You're going to, you're going to spend some money now, but it's going to be save you so much more in time, headache, money, whatever it is you want to do. I'm headache money. Exactly. All of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you, Yasser, for, for that. I mean, look, this is one of those topics where uh, even my head is beginning to spin a little bit because we've talked about <laughs> a lot of issues. Um, but I know that there, there is a lot of information out there. I know people can contact you as well, you, you know, get, get their, uh, um, their, their act together, especially when estate planning, but also just to ask questions about, you know, what something maybe they, they heard, but they didn't quite understand. So now you're based in Arizona, but you do nationwide, right? Yeah, so we're based in Arizona. We live in Phoenix, um, and we assist clients around the country with uh, local council relationships. So um, uh, estate planning is one of those uh, types of fields where it is jurisdiction specific. And so um, if, you know, there are clients who need assistance and they're working around, you know, they're based in different country, different states, rather, um, Sometimes they come to us with their own attorney or their attorney will contact us or we'll identify local counsel in those jurisdictions and they'll assist with, you know, different components of the, of the plan. So to make sure that, like you said, did we meet the state, you know, formality requirements? Is there some nuanced tax law? Um, You know, every state's a little bit different and every state has its own rules. And so it's impossible to know the rules in all 50 jurisdictions. Um, But, you know, we're going to try to, integrate Islamic inheritance law with the various trust tools with the help of a local attorney um, to make all of that happen, inshallah. Cool. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Take care. Consider an investment's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. To obtain this and other important information about the Amana Funds in a current prospectus or summary prospectus, please visit amanafunds.com or call toll-free 1-800-728-8762. Please read the prospectus or summary prospectus carefully before investing. The Amana Funds are distributed by Saturna Brokerage Services, member FINRA and SIPC, and a wholly owned subsidiary of Saturna Capital, the investment advisor to the Amana Funds. Investing involves risk, including the risk that you could lose money. The Amana Funds restrict investments to those companies consistent with Islamic and sustainable principles, which limits opportunities and may affect performance. This material is for general information only and is not a research report or commentary on any investment products offered by Saturna Capital. This material should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security in any jurisdiction where such an offer or solicitation would be illegal. We do not provide tax accounting or legal advice to our clients and all investors are advised to consult with their tax, accounting, or legal advisors regarding any potential investment. Investors should not assume that investments in the securities and or sectors described were or will be profitable. This podcast is prepared based on information Saturna Capital deems reliable. 
However, Saturna Capital does not warrant the accuracy or completeness of the information. Investors should consult with a financial advisor prior to making an investment decision. The views and information discussed in this commentary are at a specific point in time, are subject to change, and may not reflect the views of the firm as a whole. All material presented in this publication, unless specifically indicated otherwise, is under copyright to Saturna. No part of this publication may be altered in any way, copied, or distributed without the prior express written permission of Saturna Capital.